Hey guys, so in this presentation I'm going to be sharing with you a series or a lecture that uh, that I originally intended for the group that we had there in Red Deer. And uh, basically what this is going to focus on is an overview of some of the ideas that we've already explored on the channel. So if any of this, you know, if, if you feel as if this is a little bit too general, and you'd like to go a little more in depth with some of the details in this presentation, I'd recommend that you check out some of the other videos that we have. But in this presentation, that is what we're going to be looking at, is seeing how these religious ideas move and change over time. So the first thing that we want to look at are the beliefs of Aboriginal people, especially you know when we when we look into the contemporary beliefs of uh, Aboriginals, say the uh, the shamans in the Amazon or the sand bushmen of South Africa, Aboriginal Australians, the shamans of Mongolia. These are all communities of people who have been leading relatively primitive ways of life. Uh, since since the ancient past and so their ideas have not changed and they provide for us an opportunity to look into how prehistoric people thought about the world and how they made sense out of their belief systems and the oldest indications that we have of this kind of religious thinking come to us through cave paintings and rock paintings so Dr. David Lewis Williams, he, he wrote a wonderful book uh, called The Mind in the Cave, and I really would recommend that you guys give that some consideration. It's a great read. He also did another book called Deciphering Ancient Minds, in which he explains how he was able to use the, the cave paintings and the rock paintings of the sand bushmen to understand and interpret their belief systems. What we find ubiquitously throughout all of these ancient cultures and traditions is that they were using altered states of consciousness to contact the spirit world. That's to say that they were using dreams and hallucinations to contact gods, deities, spirits, this sort of thing. And the images that we see painted on the cave walls of these prehistoric caves are images and representations of the shaman's encounter with these spirits and his, his journey into the spirit world. This particular image here on the bottom left is from Lascaux in France, and we can clearly see a shaman here entering an altered state of consciousness in unison with a buffalo who is dying. So when we look at some of these prehistoric rock paintings, what we, we, we find often images of animals, in this case a deer, but we also find these strange geometric patterns and lines. And we find these all over the world. And what it tells us, what it reveals to us, is that these, these shamans, these spiritual seekers, were entering these altered states of consciousness and then painting their experiences on cave walls and in, into the rock itself. In this particular image, you can see how the, the querent, the spiritual shaman, is, is seeing the buffalo emerge out of these, these nodules on the cave roof, and then he paints the image of those right into the rock. So he's, he's painting his hallucination. As he was entering an altered state of consciousness, he probably seen these, you know, these buffalo in the rock, and then that's what he records is exactly what he saw. But we also find 
again, these, these interesting geometric patterns, sometimes circles, zigzag shapes, things of this kind. And uh, what we now know is that these were the recordings of entoptic phenomena. And this is basically the experience of the mind under stress when it's entering an altered state of consciousness. So if somebody is, uh, you know, say fatigued or, or begins hallucinating, they will often see these lines, these geometric shapes begin to emerge. And then out of those shapes comes the hallucination. I was just recently watching a, a quick little video on YouTube about a lady who explained that she suffers from schizophrenia. And around the outside of her peripheral vision, she'll see a kind of vibration, a, a vibrating and uh, this is what tells her that, that the, uh, the hallucination is coming. And so that's what you're seeing here is the recording of this experience. Here, this is, this is from the Australian Aboriginals. And uh, you can clearly see that this animal is emerging out of these grid patterns, these hallucinatory lines. So these shamans, these Aboriginals, they would employ a number of different methods to enter an altered state of consciousness. Dehydration, prolonged periods of fasting, fatigue or sleep deprivation, psychotropic substances, schizophrenia or frontal lobe epilepsy, and sensory deprivation. And it's rather interesting because we can actually pinpoint religious traditions to each one of these. In the case of dehydration, the, uh, the native Indians of the Bighorn uh, tribe just outside of Rocky Mountain House where I grew up. They they use uh, sweat lodges and sweat shacks to sweat and sweat and sweat until they become so severely dehydrated that they begin to hallucinate. And then they will push themselves into a state of fatigue by running up a mountainside. And in fact, I was I was lucky enough to, uh, to spend some time out there. I, I've done quite a bit of hiking in the Bighorn Wilderness Country. And uh, here's an example of some, some rock art that we came across down the Cataract River Valley. This is, this is close to Klein River and uh, Pinto Lake up in the mountains. And you can clearly see that they've taken an ochre paint here and they've painted images of, of figures. And uh, this obviously held some kind of sacred significance to the aboriginals who created it. Here you can see a photograph of my two friends who were with me on the hike. And then on a separate occasion, uh, another friend of mine, we were out camping and uh, we happened to cross a hill. And on the hillside were all these, these rags, these colored rags tied into the hill. Now, I guess, you know, maybe the average passerby might not have uh, recognized it, but I immediately knew what this was. Because you see the, the aboriginals in this community, they'll sit in the sweat lodge and once they become severely dehydrated, they'll begin running up a steep mountainside. And once they reach the top of this mountainside, they'll collapse out of dehydration and exhaustion. And that's then when they enter the altered state of consciousness and have the spirit journey. That's when they have the journey into the spirit we are. And here you can see this would have been used to heat stones in order to create the sweat lodge. And here's the sweat lodge itself. So a basic structure is built. In the middle, you have a fire that is used to heat the stones. And once the stones are hot, they're placed into that hole. They, uh, they then pour water on it. This is all covered with blankets, maybe animal skins, whatever the case may be. And they all sit inside of here and they sweat until they become severely dehydrated. And so that was, that was really a, a great opportunity to, to see that. 
and uh, to be able to recognize that this was a sacred place for the for the natives in that area. And they're still practicing this. I mean, this is a modern form of religious practice. Prolonged periods of fasting, that's definitely appropriate to the Abrahamic traditions. I mean, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, you know, the, the prophets often find themselves retreating into the desert, into the wilderness. The extreme heat of uh, the Palestinian wilderness likely causes dehydration as well. So this is a great way of uh, putting the body under extreme stress in order to induce these, these altered states of consciousness. Fatigue, again, plays into all of this. Psychotropic substances seems to be more appropriate to the northern uh, communities, such as the Siberian shamans who will use uh, Amanita muscaria and different magic mushrooms. As a matter of fact, actually, Amanita muscaria in particular is fascinating because that's the origin of Santa Claus, and that's a whole, we could go into a whole other uh, topic just on that alone, but Psychotropic substances have become uh, definitely popular since the 1960s when we saw the introduction of LSD and uh, the use of peyote by the Woichel Indians of uh, Mexico, uh, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, and ayahuasca traditions in, uh, in the Amazon rainforest of South America. I mean, this goes on and on and on. You can name examples of Aboriginal communities who use psychotropic substances. There was recently an article that was uh, published and it made it made some rounds on the internet talking about an Amazonian shaman who was taken into a mental hospital and described how all of these shamans were trapped in this hospital. You know, he said these are not mentally ill people. These are shamans who are attempting to be born. So clearly, you know, uh, the schizophrenic is not regarded as an aberration in the Aboriginal community. Rather, he is the seer. He's the mystic who can see these extra, uh, extra dimensions, so to speak. And finally, we have sensory deprivation, which is definitely appropriate to the cave paintings. What we now know is that uh, the indication seems to be that in, in prehistoric Europe, the shaman in the community would lead perhaps a young man into these caves and they would remain in there for hours and hours at a time until they began to hallucinate. And as soon as they had kind of went through their journey, went through their spiritual experience, they would paint that experience on the cave walls and those are the images that we find today. Uh, one modern example of this are the uh, sensory deprivation tanks that people use. In fact, there's a, a popular film, well not so popular, more of an obscure film actually, uh, that came out in the in the 80s called Altered States and it describes how a, 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 a doctor goes into the sensory deprivation tank and then goes off into the into the other dimensions and this sort of thing. So we can we can name a multitude of different examples describing how uh, religious leaders will employ these various methods in order to enter these altered states of consciousness. I haven't even mentioned the, the, the strategies employed in India and uh, the yogic traditions there. But what we discover when we look at this is that these shamans are working with the various states of consciousness that an individual will occupy. And this is a concept that was put together by David Lewis Williams, and I, I found it really useful uh, for describing this. So he describes this as the spectrum of consciousness, and it's a pretty, pretty astounding title, but it's uh, pretty much something we experience every single day. So... 
Here on the left, we have waking consciousness, and on the right, we have a condition of total unconsciousness. So this would be a, a condition of deep sleep, sleep without dreaming. And in between these two extremes, we have the various conditions of normal consciousness. So during the day, uh, you may find yourself getting a little bit bored, and maybe you're sitting at work, and you say, oh man, I can't wait to get home, and you start to daydream. And pretty soon, before you know it, you're starting to do the head nod, right? Your head starts tipping over, and oh boy. And next thing you know, you're off into dreamland, and then that's when your boss wakes you up and you get fired, right? <laughs> so this is this is the spectrum of normal consciousness that we experience on a daily basis, right? Going from waking consciousness into sleeping. But what the what the shamans of these traditions seem to be doing is taking advantage of what uh, David Lewis Williams refers to as the intensified trajectory. There's another book that uh, David Lewis Williams refers to in, in his work, and it's called Fire in the Brain, Clinical Tales of Hallucination by Ronald K. Siegel. And this is a great book for describing an individual who, who terms himself a psychonaut. <laughs> so he, he's journeying into the unconscious by taking advantage of these uh, altered states of consciousness and uh, you know, having these experiences of uh, of the altered states of mind, and there's uh, this is a quote from that book. He says, "There's no such thing as hallucinations, only truths." And that was a word spoken by a Hoichel shaman out of Mexico. And I really want to draw your attention to this to this statement because I think fundamentally this describes in a very short way the major difference between religious thinking in the modern world and religious thinking in a traditional uh, aboriginal sense we as as western uh, you know modern scientific thinkers we use the word hallucination as a synonym for falsehood it's it's literally a synonym for nonsense if you want to say that somebody is you know acting like a madman you say that he's hallucinating so it's it's a complete dismissal of anything which is rational or even approaching truth and yet we see from this Hoichel shaman the exact opposite he's saying there are no such thing as hallucinations only truths now that is a complete shift in in thinking but i want to draw your attention as well here to this to this uh the stages of uh, altered states of consciousness, stage one, entoptic phenomena, stage two, the construal phase, and stage three, complete hallucination. Now, I have other videos where I go more into depth on this particular subject, but for now, I, I'm just going to give you guys kind of the Coles Notes version here of understanding that entoptic phenomena are the dots and lines and grid patterns that someone will see as they begin to hallucinate. The construal phase is then when those lines and dashes begin to form meaningful content, perhaps an animal or a person or a creature or something. And then finally you have complete hallucination where the individual is quite literally seeing the thing that they, that they have hallucinated. So Aboriginal religion is defined by active participation with the forces of nature. In these traditions, the forces of nature are personified in the various animals of the surrounding environment. The animals of Aboriginal religion become the incarnations of primordial energies, which are responsible for the creation and organization of the world. These animals or animal spirits are synonymous with one's own emotions and feelings. 
The shaman, therefore, becomes the animal man, an individual that becomes transparent to powerful forces of nature. And I really cannot stress enough the, the importance of recognizing the correlation between the animal, the instinct, and the shaman. So that the animal becomes a manifestation, an embodiment of an emotional energy. So perhaps an eagle manifests a feeling of freedom and a bear manifests a feeling of protection and uh, uh, you know, a, a, a cougar could manifest a, a feeling of, of power and dominance. So that the, the feelings, the emotional experiences of the, the members of the community are reflected and projected upon the animals of their environment. And these animals become the embodiments of these energies. And these energies are the closest thing you get to a proper deity in the Aboriginal belief system. But it's also important to recognize that the forces of nature are manifestations of these energies as well. And you can see this here in this image, right? The, the world supported on the backs of elephants, on the back of a tortoise. And here we have the eland from the sand bushman. This is a rock painting out of South Africa. So in this particular case, we have, this is a, a cave painting out of Europe. And uh, there was quite a bit of discussion over this. This is, it's quite a, a faint painting. This is actually a reproduction. But you can see here, you've got a, an individual, you can see definitely a humanoid figure. But he has the, the horns, the antlers of a deer, and uh, the arms of a man, and the backwards facing uh, penis of a, of a lion, right? These are all features that you've got eyes like an owl, ears more like a deer's, right? These are all features of, a, of an animal-like creature. So that this individual has become an amalgamation uh, a therianthrope is actually the technical term, where the forces of nature have come in and they have occupied the shaman. Here in this example, we have a sand bushman from South Africa who has taken on the form of an eland. You can see the head of an eland here, and his body's all covered with hairs that are standing up on end. He's got hooves. So this is this is a common form of imagery that we see in these Aboriginal communities because the shaman becomes transparent to this emotional energy. So you have to first think of the energy, that's to say the, the force of nature, as being kind of transcendent to the world, maybe perhaps even existing before the world. And that energy, that spirit, that instinct, that emotion, comes in and manifests itself in an animal form. And then that animal form, or that energy comes in and manifests itself through the shaman. And the shaman will literally put on clothes and garbs and images to represent that animal. So that he has, in a certain sense, become an incarnation of that emotional energy himself. So that he incarnates that force of nature. And that really is a, is a fundamental cornerstone of making sense out of these aboriginal belief systems. Likewise, in these prehistoric communities, the sacred feminine played a prominent role. Women were identified as personifications of nature. Their bodies spontaneously generate life like the earth, and their reproductive cycles run in unison with lunar phases and tidal cycles. Women were in possession of supernatural potency, and there's good indications to suggest that women were the first shamans. In fact, the, the indication for this 
uh, comes from anthropologists who started studying uh, the hands that were painted on cave walls. And uh, if you look up, I, I don't have an example in this presentation, but if you look up an image of those hands, you can see the outlines of these hands painted in the cave walls. And uh, when they actually studied the hands, they found them to be, uh, they found them to have the dimensions which are more common for women. Because in fact, uh, your index finger and your ring finger you can tell someone's sex based on the dimensions of those fingers and you can also judge it by the size of their hand and they figured out that it was actually women who were doing a lot of the a lot of these images a lot of these cave paintings and so here we have this is a great example of a, of a venus figurine and it's believed that there is a recognition here this is quite prehistoric between the crescent moon the moon pattern and there are notches here which are believed to represent perhaps days uh, or, or some uh, detection of time recording the lunar cycles and then recognizing the coordination of that with the woman's menstrual cycle so there's this identification of the woman as being in cooperation with in unison with the divine in unison with the universe and these lunar phases such as this Hey guys, so in this video we're going to be picking up where we left off on the video series The Evolution of God. The last video really was focused on the aboriginal and uh, prehistoric origins of religious ideas and so in this video we're going to be developing on that and seeing how those religious ideas progress through time and through history into the religious belief systems that we see today. Stay tuned. So with the establishment of city-states, people started leaving the open countryside. Nature was no longer adored and worshipped, but was domesticated and penned in. Religions needed to adapt and underwent profound transformations. The emphasis shifted when people became aware of the orderly operations of heavenly bodies. Mathematics, trade, commerce, and governance became commonplace experiences. Those incarnations of animal energies were transformed into gods and goddesses. The Therianthropes were no longer the shamans, but became deities in their own right. So you see what, what happens at this point in human history is the, the community is no longer living in connection with nature, in unison with the natural world. And so rather than worshipping a, a, at a, an unusual grove or perhaps a strange little you know, pile of stones over here, they begin building temples. And instead of shamans, you now have priests. But the image of the Therianthrope, the half-man, half-animal, is not lost. So these cultures still preserve this tradition. But instead of the shaman incarnating that energy and uh, manifesting it and putting on the, the image of the animal, now you have the image of the god, right? In this case, Horus with the head of a falcon. 
And it's also the recognition that the universe is orderly. And this largely comes in part from recognizing these, these religious leaders started to recognize the significance of celestial bodies, the orderly motion of the stars, the sun rises and sets at predictable times, the seasons change based on where the sun and the moon are located in the sky. So there's this recognition that the universe is orderly. So instead of with the Aboriginal community always looking for the for the strange, right? Always looking for the exception. Now instead, the community, the religious direction, is pointed towards the orderly, looking towards law and governing. This is a uh, a great example here of altered states of consciousness continuing to be preserved, though, in these religious traditions. This is called the famine stele of uh, Joser, Pharaoh Joser. And written in Egyptian, it says, When I was asleep, my heart was in life and happiness. I found the god Kunum standing. I caused him pleasure by worshipping and adoring him. He made himself known to me and said, I am Kunum, your creator. My arms are around you to steady your body, to safeguard your limbs. For I am the master who makes. I am he who makes himself exalted in noon, who first came forth. I will make the Nile swell for you without there being a year of lack and exhaustion in the whole land. So the plants will flourish, bending under their fruit. The land of Egypt is beginning to stir again. The shores are shining wonderfully, and wealth and well-being dwell with them as it had been before. Joser's Decree Then I awoke happy. My heart was decided and at ease. I decreed this order to the temple of my father, Kanum. So what's being recorded here is, is Pharaoh Djoser was reigning over his kingdom in the midst of a severe famine, and he offers worship to the god Kanum, and Kanum appears to him in a dream, and basically responds by saying, I will send the Nile, I will send the floodwaters to renew your kingdom, and he does. And so Djoser, he establishes laws protecting the worship of Kanum in the, in the land of Egypt, and this is the image of Kanum, the Nile god. So you can clearly see that even in these in these ancient traditions, they're still holding on to the significant role of altered states of consciousness. Likewise, when we go over to Greece, we find the oracle at Delphi, and Delphi is located on the slopes of Mount Parnassus, and this is a mountain where uh, noxious gases are being released, or at one time were released, up from, from volcanic vents deep in the earth. And the oracle at Delphi would basically uh, breathe in these gases to put herself into a swoon, into an altered state of consciousness, and then she would prophet, prophesy, she would speak on behalf of the god Apollo. So she would become possessed of the spirits of, of these emotional energies and then speak on behalf of those divine energies from the gods. One modern example of this is, is of course, Ganesha, the Hindu god of luck and prosperity. And likewise, he is a therianthrope with the head of an animal and the body of a man. So we can clearly see that this, this ancient shamanic tradition of dressing to look like the animal, dressing up to manifest this animal instinct, this this intuitive power that that comes from nature is definitely still being preserved here. But it's it's taken on a concretized form. So instead of the shaman incarnating this abstract energy, you now have a literal god. You have a, a being. So the next evolution that we see in religious thinking comes in the form of pantheon deities. 
So again, noticing the order of the celestial bodies, ancient people started to believe or think that there must be some king over the gods. So the competing forces of nature are governed by these celestial powers, these celestial beings. And so we see the introduction of religions that have a king god, such as Zeus, Indra, Odin, Elohim, Apu, etc. Interesting, the supreme uh, monarchical deity is almost ubiquitously affiliated with thunder. Either he is the wielder of thunder or is the father of he who wields the thunder, as in the case of Odin or El. So one of the things that's really interesting is uh, the significance of the thunder deity. This, again, seems to be a universal belief where the king of the gods is identified with this power of thunder, thunder and lightning. Here we have an example of Zeus. There's Indra, the, the king of the gods in Hindu Vedic mythology. Celestial divinities. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky, out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced. With hailstones and bolts of lightning, the Lord thundered from the heavens. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. This is out of Psalm chapter 18. So we can clearly see that in the biblical tradition, this idea of the thunder deity, the thunder god, takes on a much more elevated form. So definitely Yahweh is still seen as the king of the gods, but we slowly begin to see the introduction of something a little bit new. So this is now the stage of monotheistic Judaism specifically. Judaism seems to be one of the few isolated cases where they, they take this uh, intellectual step in religious thinking uh, basically independent. Uh, we do have Zoroastrianism, uh, which is quite similar, but the Jewish tradition seems to be quite alone in making this step. So they basically what they do is they take the Phoenician thunder god, El, and, or sorry, the Phoenician father god El, who is the father of the, the thunder god Baal, and they transform him into the supreme god Yahweh. And Yahweh reigns over a celestial court of demigods that have been renamed angels, messengers, right? So we still have this pantheon image of the supreme king who is now governing all of these uh, all of these forces of nature, but now the the forces of nature are no longer deities in their own right, but rather they become messengers of the one supreme God, the one supreme will, which is behind the entirety of the cosmos. What's really interesting is that uh, the Jews recognize these these deities, these demigods, these angels as being synonymous with stars. And specifically this is not this is not unusual. For instance, in Roman mythology, Venus, Jupiter, Mars, these are gods, right? And they govern the world through their motion through the heavens. But the, the Jews don't think of them anymore as being gods, rather they become angels. And we find that if an angel disobeys the will of the supreme God then he is cast down from heaven. He's cast down from the celestial sphere and then wanders upon the face of the earth so that these wandering spirits on the face of the earth are now recast as demons. 
Now this is a total 180 degree turn from what we saw in the beginning, right? In the beginning, we had aboriginals who were pursuing altered states of consciousness in order to get into contact with these nature spirits, these forces of nature who are responsible for governing the, the life forces here on earth. But now through the Jewish tradition, these spirits here on earth, these terrestrial spirits, are now considered fallen angels. They're demons. And this really comes in to, uh, to play a significant role in influencing European thinking in the Middle Ages especially. So we have this quotation here. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. This is out of the book of Isaiah. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So you can see this image of the angel cast down upon the earth. And I'm pointing out here, this is an image of the Roman gods uh, Ares typed against the Jewish or the more Catholic image of St. Michael, uh, a Jewish uh, archangel. So you can definitely see the similarities in terms of these concepts. But definitely, you know, in the Jewish cosmology, all of the stars, all of these individual stars were were typed as being angels. They were angels that were flying through the heavens and their motion through the heavens was responsible for governing the events of life here on earth. And so they become the messengers of this supreme cosmic will. And astrology was the discipline of trying to learn how to read or interpret the motions of those celestial bodies and the effects that they would have subsequently here on earth. But we definitely do not lose the Therianthrope image, which I find really fascinating. It survives in the Jewish tradition in the form of these angels. So you have the cherubim, which are really quite similar to the sphinxes of Egypt. And it's reputed that these were installed in the temple of King Solomon. And so here again, right, we have this image of the, the deity, the shaman, this, this force of nature which has incarnated itself in a human-like form. Here we have some, uh, some examples here of, of these angels with the heads of animals and the bodies of men. Compare it to the Egyptian images, right? It's, it's same concept, same exact idea. This is actually uh, the Lion Man of Holenstein Stadel. This was probably created to depict a shaman who was incarnating the emotional energy of a lion. And here you have uh, the Sekhemet of Kom Ombu in Egypt. This is the goddess Sekhemet. And then, you know, progressing along, we see the archangels. So you can definitely get a sense. I've, I've put together here this diagram where beginning with the nature spirits, the forces of the natural world, they become concretized to form deities. And out of these deities, the will, the power, the organizing nucleus of this energy is elevated up to become a deified figure, a thunder god, who then governs all of these lesser forms of natural energy, which are now recast in an angelic role. And if they disobey the will of the supreme overseer, then they get cast down to become the, 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 the false spirits of earthly energies. So Judaism is predicated on the story of Moses receiving divine laws from God himself. 
By obeying God's laws, you put yourself in order with the universe. Like the stars, you do as you're told. And it's the community's cooperation with the divine order that encourages prosperity and well-being. If we want to interpret this psychologically, we could say that the angels are embodiments of psychological energies, feelings, emotions, etc. And God is the organizing, regulating nucleus of the psyche, termed in Jungian psychology, as the self archetype, and this is this is of course, you know, the the whole idea of Moses being the the man to receive the law, right? And if we obey this cosmic law, then things will go well. The first example of this is actually the lawgiver deity Apu and uh, Hammurabi in Babylonian tradition. Hammurabi, the king of the Babylonians, receives laws from the supreme sky god Apu. And if the people of Babylonia live in conformity with Apu's laws, then they'll, then they'll live in prosperity. So the next stage, the next significant jump in religious thinking that we see comes in the form of the God-man. And what I mean by God-man is the ambiguity that exists in many religions between the worshipper and the divine. For religions like Christianity and Hinduism, you have incarnations of God. God coming down and adopting a human form to fulfill a particular purpose or plan. Islamic Sufis describe Allah as the inmost reality of the heart, and the Sikhs encourage practitioners to discover their Satnam, the true identity in God. So here we have Krishna, right, the incarnation of this divine Vishnu supremacy that's now coming down from the heavens to be incarnate here on earth. There is no truth superior to me. Everything rests upon me as pearls are strung upon a thread. That's a verse from the Bhagavad Gita. So in Islam, Sufism is the mystical branch of Islam. Christianity was condemned on account of Christ being equated with God. But interestingly, Sufi mystics started making similar statements. Al-Halaj famously said, I am truth, and spoke of himself as being one with Allah. Sadly, like Jesus, he was executed for his claims. Rumi is another important Islamic mystic, and his poetry and prose are exceptionally insightful and beautifully written. He says here, I search for God and found only myself. I search for myself and found only God. So you see, at this stage in the religious development, there, there comes a point where the mystics of these traditions start to recognize that these experiences of mysticism, these experiences of God, are, are progressing up out of the psyche. You see, with, we're, what we're doing is we're reconnecting with the original aboriginal system of belief. You see, they're going into these altered states of consciousness, they're encountering God, and they're recognizing God as a psychological reality, which is quite quite distinct. And this is this is beautifully expressed in the Sufi traditions. These are the, the whirling dervishes of Sufism. Silence is the language of Allah. 
all else is poor translation. So, I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good works, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said that you are God's? So you see, there's this this significant evolution, this significant change now that's taking place in the minds of religious people. They are recognizing that these emotional experiences, these psychological events, these experiences of God, are experiences of their own innermost nature. This is the recognition of the Jungian notion of the self-archetype. So rather than God being the thunder deity who is enthroned up upon the clouds and throwing lightning bolts down on everyone he doesn't like. Rather, the mystic recognizes that this is just a projection of something which which is already within his own mind, within his own psyche. So early Christianity was a martyrdom cult, quite different from modern Christianity. In these early churches, believers gathered in the catacombs and tombs of recently deceased saints and prepared themselves psychologically and spiritually to embrace the same fate. So these are some of the old European churches that we see, right? It's it's really a death cult, and it's fascinating because Christians today, you know, they 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 really dislike anything that has a culty feeling, and yet early Christianity was the very definition of a cult. In fact, the the Roman citizens were quite frightened of Christians. They heard you know, these Christians, they go down into the graves and they eat the flesh of the Son of Man and they drink his blood while they're sitting over top of these catacomb tombs. I mean, it's a pretty menacing, you know, menacing belief system. So in Catholicism, we have a tradition of extreme asceticism, isolation, uh, mantra-like prayers, self-flagellation, and any and many other forms of extreme devotion were employed to replicate the conditions of martyrdom. So instead of Roman imperialism, the devil was to blame, and the saints become martyrs of their own humanity. All all nature spirits were absolutely abolished, and instincts were viewed as obstacles. Christianity set as its prerogative the conquest of human frailty. So it's, it's fascinating to see how this earlier description of the nature spirits as fallen angels really finds a dramatic expression in Catholic tradition where these mystics are attempting to lift themselves up to the celestial order and to throw down their instinctual nature, their their earthly terrestrial nature, which has now become the domain of the devil. Saints like St. Benedict, St. Francis, St. Dominic, or St. Padre Pio all represent extraordinary mystics. Each of these Catholic saints strive to achieve a Christ-like nature for themselves, deserving of participation in the life of the Trinity. So here we have St. Dominic, St. Padre Pio, and this is uh, the visionary of Medjugorje who is alive today. So finally we have the the last stage of of religious evolution, or the, the, the change in religious thinking, and this is the full recognition of the psychological origins of all of these religious ideas. So in India, the discipline of yoga is designed to enable the practitioner to enter altered states of consciousness with ease. 
Likewise, there are yogas devoted to dreaming and the mastery of dream, lucid dreaming, and thereby, in combination with morality, self-discipline, and insight, the individual strives to achieve realization of one's inmost Vishnu nature. Now, perhaps this is uh, a bit of a misnomer, because... Uh, different Hindu traditions will focus on different deities. So, for instance, a, a Vaishnavite would seek Vishnu, but Vishnu is regarded as being separate from the worshipper, uh, whereas in uh, Shivite traditions, Shiva is the inmost reality of us all. So there are different ways that in which Hindus uh, approach these concepts. Here's Lord Shiva, the, the great yogic master, and finally the, the Hindu god Brahma. So in Buddhism, we find a pure expression of this realization. So Buddhism is devoted to cultivating mindfulness, patience, and integrity in combination with meditation practices that have the goal of achieving enlightenment wherein one recognizes their innermost Buddha nature. So you see, Buddhism is really a purified form of this final uh, final sort of evolution, you might say, in religious thinking. So the, the Buddhist tradition, I think, in a lot of ways, represents the highest form of evolved religious thinking. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most effective, because a lot of these traditions that cling to more primitive ideas carry within them a greater emotional energy. They can definitely motivate, inspire, or touch people on an emotional level much better than, uh, say, a Buddhist tradition could. But that being said, Buddhism serves, I think, as a great example of a tradition that has basically lifted itself up to the highest level of, of spiritual realization and then severed itself from sort of the, the lower uh, concepts and, and ideas. Christianity, for instance, is, is very similar to Buddhism, but it retains within itself all of the, the sort of uh, baggage of that Judaic uh, tradition that was moving along in, in terms of its ideas and in terms of its thinking. So here what I've done is I've, I've created a, a diagram that uh, helps to express the evolution of these ideas through, through each stage. So here at the beginning, we have the forces of nature, which in combination with the shaman form the heart of the religious thinking. So that the, the nature spirit and the shaman fuse together in the form of trance, in the form of a dance, and then the members of the community then take the instruction and the leadership and the advice of the shaman. Once we move into city-states and organized religion, we now have priests in an organized court of worshippers who now pray to these nature spirits. And the nature spirits taking on the form of the shaman, that's to say the therianthropic form of half man, half animal, are now worshipped and praised and prayed to. Next, we have the pantheon deity. So now the thunder god comes up here, and he's responsible for the order of the cosmos, the orderly organization of cosmic uh, law, cosmic being. And the nature spirits now come down, but they're all recognized as a collective pantheon. So for instance, this, this example of the Greek religion is perfect, where you have Zeus as the king of the gods, and you have Pan, but ultimately... You know, all of these different deities are still recognized as deities in their own right. And so the community, you know, really, uh, really adores all of them. With Judaism and Islam, 
the the celestial god, the thunder god, the king of the gods, is lifted up, and the worshiper no longer addresses these nature spirits. Rather, these nature deities are subservient to the will of the supreme, and if they do not obey the will of the supreme, then they're demoted to a status as a demon. So the worshiper only worships the thunder god, the king of the gods, the ultimate source of order in the cosmos. And then when we move up to in, into this stage, this is really where the ambiguity begins, where, you know, there's the recognition uh, going back here of saying, okay, well, these, these, these experiences of God, these experiences of religion are directly linked up with the human psyche. And so there begins to develop a kind of blurring. And finally, at the, at the, at the final stage, there is the recognition that all of these things, all of these psychological energies are ultimately uh, a part of the nature of mind itself. And so the practitioner need only recognize the nature of his mind to come to a full realization and understanding of religious truth. And that's the end of the presentation. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. It, uh, it's something I'm particularly proud of. And I know... Again, I mean, this, this is a very general overview, a quick run through. I mean, there's, there's so much more information that I could go into. And, and if you felt as though this presentation was a bit of a, you know, just a, a cram, well, you, you, you're definitely right. I mean, I, I can think of a million details that I would love to throw into this presentation, but unfortunately it would, it would take me days to finish. So this is a very quick, a very quick, fast kind of run through just to give you guys a very general idea so that when you look at these various religious concepts, you can see how ultimately they're all leading up to the same kinds of fundamental truths. Now again, I want to stress that the purpose of this presentation is not to give you the impression that Buddhism is the end-all be-all, that all religions are moving towards Buddhism. Rather, what I am stressing is that all of these religions are moving towards these similar themes, but we can see the concepts that are implicit of Buddhism in Christianity, in Islam, in Hinduism. But the difference is, is that these other traditions, so specifically Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and so on, they retain sort of the, the baggage or the memories of the traditions which came before and to varying degrees. So, for instance, Christianity retains the pantheistic deity. They retain the traditions of this Zeus-like god, this thunder god, who rules over his court and governs the, the, the cosmos, and, and Christians, they carry that, right? That's a part of their tradition. Same with Muslims. Uh, Hindus, they retain traditions going right back to the uh, the celestial deities, right? The therianthropic deities like uh, Ganesha and, and these sort of figures. So many of these traditions, you know, they will get to a certain point of, of realization and then they'll choose whether to throw off and abandon uh, earlier traditions. And Buddhism is a great example of a tradition that has completely cut itself off from these earlier ideas. Now, that being said, uh, one fascinating exception is with Tibetan Buddhism, because Tibetan Buddhism actually was a form of Buddhism that merged 
with a kind of bond religion, which was a type of primitive uh, aboriginal belief system, so that you have the highest level of religious thinking and the lowest level of religious thinking coming together to form Tibetan Buddhism. And I don't think it's any surprise that Tibetan Buddhists and their practices are some of the most profoundly powerful mystic methods that are available to people today. So if you if you spend some time with this, and I'd encourage you guys you know, to, to, to maybe pause the video on that final slide and uh, just spend some time thinking about that because, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see how these different religious ideas all evolve and progress. So if you guys enjoy this, I'd encourage you to please uh, like and subscribe and stick around. And uh, as always, thanks for watching.